Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got an incredible show planned for you folks tonight. So sit back, grab a drink, and preferably a smoke for this episode and enjoy this conversation. My guest for today is Mr. Chris Bennett. Chris Bennett has been researching the historical role of cannabis in the spiritual life of humanity for more than a quarter of a century. Chris is widely recognized as one of the foremost authorities on the history of cannabis, having written dozens of articles in Cannabis Culture, High Times, and other magazines, as well as three books dealing with the subject. Bennett's research has received international attention from the BBC, Guardian, Sunday Times, Washington Post, Vice, and now The Human Experience. He currently resides in Vancouver, British Columbia, Chris, it's a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Hey, my pleasure to be here. So glad to have you on the show, Chris. Why don't you kick this off with just a brief introduction, very briefly, of who you are and what you do, please? Well, um, I live here in Vancouver. I've got a shop here in Vancouver called The Urban Shaman, and we provide a variety of entheobotanical plants, peyote, ayahuasca, things like that. And I'm also a uh, cannabis researcher. I've written four books, actually, on the history of cannabis, uh, Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana, and Magic and Religion, which came out in 2005, Sex, Drugs, Violence, and the Bible, uh, which came out in 2001, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, which came out in 2010, and more recently, Herb, uh, uh, Libra 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and the Occult, uh, which came out in 2018. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been doing, you've been researching and doing this for a long time, but did you just say that you provide you know, ayahuasca and peyote there in Canada? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I provide whatever plants I can that are not scheduled here, you know, uh, um, uh, within reason, but uh, a variety of plants like that. And I've been doing that here for a very long time. Huh. I also uh, have a uh, retreat here in British Columbia, Soma Institute, which facilitates uh, that type of thing as well. Okay, okay, cool. So, you know, let's let's dive in here, Chris. I mean, in 1990, you experienced a profound religious experience where it was revealed to you that cannabis was, what, the tree of life in the Bible, book of revelations? I mean, there was a dream journal involved, and some of the imagery related to the various references in the book of revelations. How did, how did this happen? Tell us about this experience. You know, uh, like I think a lot of religious experience, it was a combination of uh, events and also substances. You know, in my case, it was cannabis, but I you know, used cannabis for a long time before that and hadn't had any sort of experience like this. But uh, in regards to events, the first of the events that took place uh, was here in Canada. There was a really big scandal involving the Catholic Church uh, where they had been exposed for pedophilia at the uh, Mount Cashel Orphanage. And uh, what had happened is kids had grown up and started coming out and talking about it. It was the first time 
this sort of thing was even talked about in the press here. And that got me interested. I was like, well, gee, I thought religion was about something other than that. Um, I'm going to read the Bible. And I started, I had a job as a night watchman, had a lot of time to read, you know, and I started reading the Bible. Uh, coinciding with this, uh, um, I found out about the industrial applications of hemp. How we could make all our paper out of cannabis, all our uh, our clothes, our uh, even fuel, a, a tremendously good uh, source of protein in the seeds and other things like that. And then also coinciding was the Gulf War started in Iraq. Hmm. And Saddam Hussein had fired a Scud missile into Israel. And because of this, people uh, were beginning to compare him to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the last king of Babylon. Babylon sits in Iraq. And Saddam hmm. loved that comparison. And so one night I was sitting in this uh, fish plant where I was a night watchman about two in the morning. And I was reading this newspaper. And in those days, they used to advertise television and newspaper. There's no internet. Uh, um, and there was an advertisement for a sermon by Pat Robertson. And it said, Revelations 18, the fall of Babylon. There's Robertson at the pulpit. And behind him, he's got picture tanks and jets. And I was like reading it. And I was like, whoa, they're tying in the book of Revelation with this Gulf War in Iraq. And I thought, well, I'm going to read the book of Revelation right now. And so I grabbed this Bible that I had sitting in the night watchman's office, you know, and uh, I began reading it at the beginning of the story uh, in the book of Revelation. John of Patmos is given a scroll and he puts it in his mouth and it tastes as sweet as honey and he swallows it, turns bitter in his stomach and he begins to prophesize. And uh, I, I was like. What on earth uh, uh, did he ingest to get that effect, you know? Uh, um, and uh, I started reading further, and I started talking about they were all wearing sackcloth, and they were given much incense to offer, and the billowing clouds of incense contained the prayers of the saints. And I was really tripping out, thinking, this is some pretty weird imagery. And I got to the very end of uh, the book of Revelation, one of the last uh, two paragraphs in the Bible, Revelations 22, and it said, on either side of the river of life stood the tree of life, bearing 12 manners of fruit, yielding its fruit uh, each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And when I read that, I had this really crazy experience where I felt like light just beamed right into my body. And I, I, I was like, oh, man, this is a reference to cannabis and all its uses uh, for fiber, for fuel, for paper. And uh, it's healing leaves, it's medicinal qualities, you know, and I, I just, I couldn't shake it. And I called my wife up at the time uh, that I was married to, and she started crying, thinking I had some sort of mental breakdown, you know. And then the next day I got up and was like, was there anything to that, or was I just like tripping out? Mm -hmm. And I decided at that point, well, you know, I was pretty sure about hemp, and I was going to promote that. And then I would just start collecting everything I could. Uh, uh, regarding the role of cannabis in, in religion. And I started, you know, accumulating a lot of information. And I guess the dream journal thing you mentioned, that came later, a couple of years later. Okay. I had a, a dream where I was walking along a riverbed and I found an oblong stone with an image inscripted on it. And I drew it down in my dream journal. And later on, I came across these Assyrian images that purported to be uh, images of the tree of life, you know. And uh, the Assyrians were, were uh, spiritual and medicinal cannabis users as well. There's, there's lots of references in Assyrian literature to it. And uh, um, I was like, whoa, this is the same image, you know, that I had in my dream. And since then, uh, an archaeologist in Britain has also suggested, based on her own independent research, that these same images, uh, Julian Steen, uh, uh, Juliana Steen, uh, um, uh, are also tr uh, related to cannabis and their origins, you know, and there's, there's a lot to that theory. Okay, okay. So 
Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the archaeological evidence of the cannabis use in ancient civilizations, particularly yeah. with the the relationship to the Middle East, which you were just referencing. What is? I mean, what what time frame are we talking about? We're talking about what five thousand years ago? Oh, uh, um, you know, like as far as like evidence for archaeological evidence of cannabis, you know, for fiber cannabis, which is, you know, cannabis used for rope or for clothing, uh, um, we can go back 25,000 years, you know, uh, in Czechoslovakia, they found evidence of hemp rope going back this far. And uh, uh, Elizabeth Whalen Barber, uh, who's probably the foremost authority on agent textiles, has suggested tools used for breaking up hemp fiber can be dated back to 28,000 years. In regards to smoking, it actually the oldest inhaling it, you know, uh, not like smoking in pipes or bongs or joints or anything like that, but inhaling it from sensors, uh, there is evidence from the Ukraine region uh, which purports to be 5,500 years uh, uh, old of a polypod bowl that was used to uh, burn cannabis. Uh, textual evidence uh, in Egypt for for the use of cannabis goes back like 3,500 years. Uh, we have Assyrian uh, references, uh, you know, like 3,000, 2,800 years ago starting, you know, uh, archaeological evidence of uh, Scythian use going back to around that same sort of time period. Uh, recently in China, they found very well preserved uh, 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 evidence of uh, high THC content cannabis at a number of different sites, uh, ranging from like 2900 to 2500 BC. Uh, um, and textual references in like Zoroastrian literature, probably like 2500 years. Uh, uh, Syrian, Syrian literature, probably mentioned before, about 2800 years, 3000. So uh, uh, in Persians or yeah, Persians or Astrian literature, uh, um, in in the Vedas, uh, there's evidence of that. That's probably like 3,500 years old. Uh, um, you know, it goes way, way back in a variety of cultures in China as well. It's thought to be referred to in what is thought to be the oldest pharmacopoeia, the Pentasau of Emperor Shen Nung, which some have dated as far back as 2700 BC. Um, so you know, in the oldest pharmacopoeia is Ayurveda. Assyrian medical texts, Egyptian medical texts. Uh, uh, um, there's there's references to medical use of cannabis and also religious use of cannabis in a lot of these texts as well. Yeah, you know, I read this article of a pouch found. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure where it was. I think it was in Siberia or something like that, where there was. You know, they found some bones, and as well, they found like a a pouch with. Um, this residue of, of cannabis and, and some other drugs as well, uh, even cocaine leaves, like coca leaves. Oh, uh, um, I think maybe you're getting, there was recently, there was a South American pouch with evidence of plants used in ayahuasca, buffalo teen, I think some coca leaf, and that was like a thousand years ago. But they have found pouches uh, uh, with preserved cannabis uh, at Scythian sites from 2,700 years ago. Scythians are a very ancient culture, uh, um, and a lot of people credit them with uh, uh, spreading it because they were nomadic horse riders. And horse riding itself uh, is thought to have been developed by an ancestor of the Scythians, uh, the Shredeni Stog. Uh, uh, um, and it's, it's believed that the horse was actually domesticated through the development of hemp ropes, which uh, allowed for them to be corralled and uh, uh, tied up and things like that, which was necessary in their domestication. And it's interesting because it's in the same culture that we find the oldest evidence for, for burnt cannabis. And the Scythians, we know, uh, um, did it the same way because uh, Herodotus 
wrote about them um, heating up stones and putting them in these small teepee-like tent structures and then throwing cannabis on the stones and then sticking their heads in the tents to inhale the fumes. And uh, this was a pretty widespread uh, uh, practice among Indo-European cultures. We know that Indo-Europeans in China that had uh, – um, due uh, to being nomads and ended up in China and lived there for about 2000 to 400 BC mm-hmm. before the indigenous Han Chinese cha- chased them out of that region also practiced the same method and these are these more recent finds of really well preserved cannabis that they know is high THC content most recent uh, news stories about this area involve a brazier with the same sort of hot rock system and the cannabis thrown on it that the Scythians in you know Russia and uh, even into the Middle East and Persia were practicing um, and uh, um, other finds in the same region involved a, a bouquet of female cannabis flowers uh, placed on the, the, the body uh, of a burial person and also two pounds of uh, perfectly preserved uh, cannabis, uh, uh, female cannabis in, in another uh, uh, site, you know, uh, buried in another tomb with a mummify, mummy. Uh, um, so, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty fascinating stuff. And, and this, this culture here in China, in, in the Turin Basin, they actually exported cannabis from out that area. And, you know, what we've referred to as the Silk Road, in fact, uh, these, these recent discoveries of these Indo-Europeans in China have uh, changed the date of the Silk Road. It used to be thought to have started around, you know, 100 B.C., back 2,000 years earlier, roughly, you know. And uh, um, it's as much a hempen highway as it was a Silk Road because it is certain that uh, high-quality cannabis traveled out of this region just as other goods traveled into it from other areas uh, via these trade routes. So it seems clear that there is a direct relationship to this plant being used widely through ancient civilization everywhere. In the, in the same piece that you wrote um, that I just mentioned in my previous question for Cannabis Culture, you quoted uh, Diana Steen. And yeah, that's right. You, yeah, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned that archaeologists have, have long studied the, the science of, of this ritualistic use involving drugs and they didn't realize it in some way. How, how well, did they I not, think, how did they I not think, realize it? I think there's a lot of bias, you know, like people that don't uh, use psychoactive substances, psychedelics, cannabis and stuff like that often don't realize the implications uh, of references when they come across it that, you know, they don't really think is that important, hmm. but uh, you know, uh, it's very important because these things alter our perception, and this is why they were used in these types of rituals, you know. Uh, in some of the older references, say like in, in, in the Zoroastrian accounts, um, people would uh, drink cannabis infusions and uh, in cannabis infused into wines. Wine. Yeah. And these were so powerful that they would actually knock you out for a couple of days. And they would come back after being knocked out and report all sorts of visions that they thought were quite real events. You know, well, one figure, Ardu Virath, he, his visions are what uh, developed into what we call heaven and hell. You know, he reported how the righteous were rewarded and the evil were punished and described heavenly like uh, uh, um, uh, uh, communities as well as uh, people being punished in hell, you know, uh, um, as well as uh, 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 what is considered by many the prototype of the the book of Revelation, the Oracle of Hystaspius, a mm-hmm. Persian figure, a king, uh, no one is Vishtaspa, but in Greek, Hystaspius, hmm. his, his vision of the end of time was produced by drinking the same concoction. 
and uh, in these controversial references uh, that a number of uh, researchers have said are references to cannabis in the Hebrew under the name cannabosum. Hmm. Uh, um, the uh, idea here is that in the first of these references in uh, Exodus 30:23, God, who first appears to Moses and flames a fire from within a burning bush, mm-hmm. commands Moses to make a holy anointing oil with about nine pounds of cannabis uh, mixed with myrrh and cinnamon into about six liters of uh, uh, olive oil. And every time that Moses is to speak to the Lord, he goes in what is referred to as the tent of the meeting, which is much like the uh, Scythian enclosures, an enclosed tent-like structure meant to hold smoke and fumes. And then he would place some of this same holy oil on his skin, and your skin's a big uh, organ, and THC is fatty soluble, and it's thought to be able to pass through the skin, it's been shown to in scientific tests. And he would also place some of this oil on the altar of incense, and he would speak to the Lord in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense. Uh, the, the, the pillar of smoke is actually referred to as the Shekinah and refers to the physical princes, presence of God in the temple. And so the only time Moses is speaking to the Lord is when there's smoke pouring out of this tent meeting. And so when you throw cannabis into a situation like that, now was Moses talking to some sort of discarnate entity uh, that was commanding him to go into Canaan and take over the land and bring new laws to his people? Uh-huh. Or was Moses like a shaman? Right. who would still to this day in South America or Africa take psychoactive substances and interpret the experience of that of psychoactive substances as some sort of possession or communication with uh, an, another deity. Okay, okay, okay. So we're going to get there. We're going to get to that point. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about just, the, I mean, there seems to be a little bit of controversy because of what you say is linguistic or etymological etymological issues words that are used or misused in the history in the usage of the history of cannabis how how do you think that affects the literature and how we understand uh you know if cannabis is being used or something else well you know like i say with the uh uh the hebrew references uh, I just referred to that's a little more controversial, you know. Not not uh, by far the uh, not that many people know about these references that you know uh, uh, um, even study Hebrew and stuff like that. It's pretty specific stuff, right? And uh, are, are unaware of the controversy, and you have to really lay out the evidence for it in a big way. And there's a lot of evidence for uh, cannabis and being cannabis. There's been other plants suggested as well, though, as I mentioned, calamus, uh, 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 sweet, sweet grass, uh, 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 other things as well, cinnamon even. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, there's, you know, debate about it. But I would uh, say that, you know, you take a look at the evidence for it. And, you know, one of the things in the evidence is something that's less controversial. And this is the idea that Assyrian references to Kanabu, which is very phonetically similar to Kanabasim, phonetically meaning sounds very similar the way it's spelt and uh, uh, whatnot, uh, um, and it's used in an identical way as an incense and a holy anointing oil and a medicine. And uh, these are widely accepted, you know, uh, um, as being references to cannabis by Assyriologists, appearing in Assyrian encyclopedias and that type of thing as the most likely uh, uh, um, thing. But, you know, it's still... Not 100% because it's not physical evidence. 
physical evidence trumps everything, you know what I mean? And that's what's so nice uh, uh, in the cases where we can provide actual archaeological evidence, which is difficult to find when you're dealing with a plant because plant material breaks down over time and uh, is hard to identify unless specific environmental factors are present. But that sometimes happens, and we do have uh, some wonderful evidence of cannabis. I mentioned the, the references in China. Right. Uh, there's the uh, evidence from uh, the Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex uh, um, uh, provided by Victor Serianati, which some have challenged as well. But Serianati, a Russian archaeologist, this is widely accepted in Russia, uh, um, claimed to have found uh, what were uh, identified as uh, Soma or Haoma temples, an ancient beverage uh, that was a sacrament of uh, both uh, the, the, the Vedic Indians and the Avestan Persians. Mm -hmm. And um, he found that there, in, the, in those sites, evidence of the, the preparation of a drink that was made from cannabis ephedra and in some cases cannabis ephedra and poppy. Uh, um, and these plants all grow wild around this region uh, to this day. And this evidence goes back 4,000 years, you know. And we're talking um, temple, three temple sites, and each of these temple sites is about the size of a football field. So these are massive uh, agent world places, you know, that people would have come to from all around the region uh, to partake of, of the sacrament prepared there. Um, and also there's been recent finds of Scythian golden cups, uh, which provided residue of uh, cannabis and uh, uh, opium. So some sort of beverage containing those substances was likely prepared in those cups, you know, and this is solid archaeological evidence. At other Scythian sites, we have found the braziers with the heated rocks that were the cannabis was thrown on and cannabis seeds burnt and stuff like that uh, inside of uh, these braziers. So we know that this was, you know, pretty solid archaeological evidence. Cannabis has been found at a number of Viking sites, uh, uh, um, and, uh, you know, cannabis fibers have been found in ancient mummies mixed in with their hair and things like that. So we know that, you know, that was around from there as well. And uh, uh, um, that sort of evidence. So uh, um, that sort of thing is much more solid than, um, you know, suggestions about agent words from, from forgotten languages. You know, that's certainly true. But uh, um, regardless of that, you know, Egyptologists uh, widely regard uh, Shem Shemet. Uh, as the the name for cannabis in Egyptian, and uh, um, we know in Chinese references uh, to to Ma and Huma and Wang Ma and different things or mm -hmm. different sorts of references to cannabis and variations of cannabis. Um, and still, you know, similar linguistics are used to get today in China for it. So, uh, we're, so we're talking about the same thing. There's just different linguistic representations for the absolutely. same plant different languages and stuff like that. And some of the words are very related. You know, like. Uh, um, in regards to Indo-European languages, you know, and this includes French, English, German, uh, Sanskrit, uh, uh, other languages as well, a variety of, of, of languages are all find their origins in the Indo-European language. The Indo-European language was the mother language of that. And we know that these words are all related because of the A-N in a lot of them, like the, the, uh, the, the Indo-European word was kana. And uh, in French, we find chanvra with that same A-N. In, 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 in Hindi, we find bong with that same A-N coming mm -hmm. from the Sanskrit. 
uh, in uh, German, we find Hanf, you know, with that same A-N. And all these words are related. We know that because they come from the same source, the mother language of these other languages. So before these even these these different uh, languages developed and split off from the, their Indo-European roots, cannabis had already been used by humanity for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it you go into the the Knights Templar and you you get into uh, symbolism and secrecy and how it seems to go hand in hand with the historical use of cannabis. But l- let's start with the basics. I mean, who who were the Templars? Well, the Templars were uh, Catholic knights that had gone into the Holy Land during the uh, Crusade period. Period to uh, help uh, uh, pilgrims that were going from Europe and other places into the Holy Land uh, to protect them from the, the Islam, Islamics and raiders and stuff like that. Um, and so they spent you know, a couple centuries uh, in the Holy Land. And uh, they, we know that they had come into contact uh, with a variety of Islamic cultures and groups and stuff like that, one of these being a group known as the Assassins or Hashishin, Assassin and Hashish, both come from the same root word, hashishin, and hashishin uh, means hashish eater. And this was a name that uh, uh, mainstream Islam uh, used to refer to a group of heretics, what they viewed as heretics, Islamic heretics, mm-hmm. uh, with very controversial beliefs. They re- and they derogatorily called them hashish eaters. And uh, um, in the myths brought back by Marco Polo and others, uh, there's a description of the leader of the Hashishins, the old man of the mountain, um, dosing uh, uh, potential recruits with uh, a hashish elixir that's so powerful that it would knock them out. And then they would reawaken in this beautiful pleasure garden where there'd be nymphs and streams of wine and other things. And they'd think they'd gone to paradise. And then he'd dose them again and said, ah, now that you have seen paradise, you'll serve me so that you can go there in death. You know, this is the legend, right? That's come come to the Europe. But there, there may be some basis of fact in this. And we know that uh, uh, um, the original uh, uh, old man of the mountain, Hassan I. Sabah, was friends with a famous poet who uh, – whose name escapes me right now. Um, but he wrote about cat, hashish-infused wines himself. Uh, and so that was around then. And we know that uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, medieval and Renaissance-era Islamic poetry uh, um, written about hashish. So it was definitely used by the mystics there. And um, the idea is that uh, this was passed on to the Templars. And uh, uh, there have been claims in a number of books uh, that the Templars had a cannabis-infused wine that was also contained aloe vera uh, mixed into a palm wine that they referred to as the Elixir of Jerusalem. And I was, you know, coming across these references in all sorts of books on aloe vera and a uh, book on medieval uh, medicine, but none of them listed any source material for it, you know, material going back to the actual time period. Right. So it seemed like hearsay, no matter how much I checked around. So I started going back into actual time period uh, uh, um, material on the Templars, material from their trials and uh, uh, the, the charges against them, that sort of thing, right, mm-hmm. that have translated out of the Latin. And I was able to find in there that, in fact, the Templars had uh, Saracens, Arabs, growing uh, cannabis for them in Spain. And we know that hashish was use, in use in Spain in this time period. And Arabs were not growers of, you know, 
hemp for for cloth and rope and that type of thing. They use other plants for those things in the uh, Islamic world. They, the Arabs were growers of resin cannabis, uh, THC content cannabis. And then we also know at two of the Templar raids uh, um, uh, that there was a, a considerable amount of cannabis seized. It's listed on a uh, list of seized items from the Templar sites in England and uh, in other places. You know, we're talking about pounds of cannabis. Uh, um, and it seems to be, you know, raw cannabis, not some sort of fiber, because everything else is listed very specifically. These references just refer to cannabis uh, uh, um, by the Latin name cannabis. Uh, um, and uh, don't really go into any detail about it, but it does just seem to be some sort of raw cannabis. Uh, um, and so it seems quite likely that there may be some basis for these claims. Also, in the same time period, uh, a pope, the, te the Templars ended up be being accused of heresy, you know, mocking the cross sure. and mm -hmm. were burnt at stake. But for a long period of time, they were in good favor of the Catholic Church. And a pope uh, that was friendly with the Templars released a book of medicine while the Templars were in the Holy Land that contained a recipe for a cannabis-infused wine, and also coinciding uh, with the Templars' stay in, in the Holy Land, a, uh, a, a mason, a, a builder, a stone builder, uh, was was in the Holy Land, uh, 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 Villard de Honnecourt, and his portfolio of Villard de Honnecourt, a, which is mostly an illustration of building techniques and statues uh, from the Holy Land that he brought back into Europe, uh, um, the only page of uh, a text in the whole portfolio is for a cannabis-infused wine, and this is in the same time period, you know. Uh, um, so there is, you know, there's some pretty interesting uh, uh, material uh, indicating that there, there may be something to this claim, elixir of Jerusalem, and this is, right. you know, a, a very sacred substance. Now, in regards to the grail, uh, um, the, the grail is is this myth of this sacred cup you know that brings you wealth but um my view is and is that it has a lot more to do with the effects of what comes out of the mm -hmm. grail mm -hmm. and, and it's like an initiatory process and uh in the 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 cup that was used to drink the ancient sacrament soma and there's been some really good strong evidence that both soma and haoma played a really big influence on the development of the grail which was thought to have come out of the holy land uh, um, uh, the sacred cup used for drinking that substance was, was the graha, uh, golden cup, you know. Uh, um, so it's, it's very interesting when you, when, you, when you take a look at some of this evidence and uh, uh, um, the, the, the way it was used and uh, uh, the myths about the grail and how they overlap into myths about Soma and uh, the Persian Hashishin. So you've got, you've got, I mean, it's fascinating. You've, so you've got these Templars that are working for the church and then fall out of favor. And when they're raided, they are sitting on a bunch of raw cannabis and it's theorized. I mean, why do you think, I mean, they had it. Do you, do you think it was used for mystical purposes? Were they summoning, you know, spirits? Yeah. Like what was going on there? I think that, you know, what we see here, the, you know, the Hashishin, they, they came out of Persia and the, the pre-Islamic culture of Persia, the Zoroastrians, as I mentioned, were, were ingesting cannabis in infusions. Cannabis, uh, we know this because it's written about in Zoroastrian texts, and they refer to cannabis as bonga, or in the Pahlavi name for cannabis, mong. 
Uh, um, and so we know what it is. There, there, there's, there's clear references to it. We know how it was used. It was used in these cannabis infusions. And we know what would happen. The people that drank these infusions would be knocked out for a couple of days and they'd come back saying visions. Well, in the case of the Hashishins, who uh, uh, first originated in Persia, uh, um, we have the same sort of situation, the sacred drink, they drink it, the guy knocks out, uh, uh, um, and, uh, in his case, the vision is of an Islamic bent, you know, he sees the, uh, the virgins that are promised to the, uh, the Islamic heroes when they go to paradise at death, you know, and that's his vision because that's their cultural context of it, but it's basically the same sort of account, and I think that there may be some evidence that, uh, um, this was passed on, to the Templars, and that's how we find these references that are, are as yet undocumented about this elixir of Jerusalem. And one of the reasons why um, uh, um, the, the Templars would have had uh, the Saracens growing it for them in Spain and have it specifically at their sites. Now, one of the more controversial things I suggested in my books. Uh, um, this this brings it to this, you know. Uh, um, we're talking about an elixir that can produce a, a death-like state, you know, in the accounts of uh, both the Zoroastrians and the Hashishins. It's, you know, uh, the stories say that other people that saw the people thought that they were dead as well. And in very high doses, cannabis can actually throw you into a state of catalepsy uh, where your body stiffens up like it has rigor mortis and you can bend the limbs into other positions and they'll stay there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, cannabis was the first anesthetic that we know of. Uh, um, the, the, in China, they were performing complicated operations like in a century AD with cannabis-infused wines. And this goes back now to one of the main... Um, crimes of the Templars was mocking the cross. You know, what's the cross about? It's about a guy who dies on the cross and then comes back to life. And uh, interestingly, uh, a book written in the late 60s, uh, The Passover Plot by Dr. Hugh Schoenfield, is about the idea that Jesus was given some sort of a potion while on the cross. You know, he's described as given being uh, given uh, uh, spoiled wine on a sponge. Mm -hmm. And when he drinks it, he says it is done and just dies suddenly. Hmm. And, you know, generally when you, you are uh, um, uh, 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 crucified, it's a slow death. What happens is your arms are spread out and as your muscles relax, your, your chest cavity closes in on your lungs and you suffocate to death, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not what happens in the story. And then it says in the story afterwards, uh, a few days later, his secret servant, and that's the name they use in the Bible, Nicodemus, secret servant Nicodemus, and another guy show up at the tomb of Jesus with aloes and bears and uh, uh, go in there to prepare the body. But aloes and bears were never part of any sort of Jewish burial uh, um, uh, um, program, you know, this, this is all kind of peculiar, right? And then Jesus rises from the dead. And so um, what you have here and what they came across, I believe, in uh, uh, the, the Middle East is can that, that cannabis and other substances could produce a death-like substance. We know that the, the Arabs were aware of this. Avicenna and others wrote about uh, um, using certain substances, cannabis, mandrake, other things, opium, to knock people out, to perform medical uh, 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 operations and that sort of thing on them. So they were certainly aware of it. And it was definitely news to Europeans, this type of stuff, they'd really fallen away from a lot of medical practices and science in Europe at this time. Most, a lot of people have called this period the Dark Ages. 
in Europe because of of the lack of uh, awareness of science and that sort of thing. And interestingly, the first stories about cannabis that come into Europe, Marco Polo's account uh, with the hashishines and the uh, them thinking they've died and gone to paradise, and the Decameron, another. Uh, uh, early novel, one of the first things ever written, uh, first novels ever written in Europe, uh, Decameron has a story about an abbot who uh, tricks a, uh, a, a non-believer uh, uh, and a, a bad, what he considered a bad man into uh, taking cannabis, and that guy as well, everybody thinks he's dead, and he goes into a tomb and then uh, eventually mm -hmm. wakes up, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so these are the earliest references to cannabis in Europe at the time, all indicate the same sort of use of cannabis to produce this death-like stupor. So what you're theorizing is that perhaps Jesus was given this wine that contained this highly potent form of cannabis and, like and, the other, this, yeah. and other things, and it could have put him into this this reduced activity state, put his body into, uh, I, don't, I don't know, what, you, what was the term that you used? Oh, catalepsy was one catalepsy. of the terms that makes your body very stiff. Like, well, you know, in the 19th century, uh, Islamic fakirs would amaze Europeans uh, by being buried in the ground for like a week, and they dig them up, and they they come back to life. And uh, a, a, a Scottish physician, Dr. James Braid of Edinburgh, uh, um, wrote a book, uh, Trance and Human Hibernation, in the 19th century, and said that this was uh, uh, um, likely. Uh, brought about by a combination of potent cannabis extracts and yogic practices. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, and then, you know, I, I can't take credit for the idea that, uh, that, 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 that that's what Jesus did. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a book, The Passover Plot, and also a film was made about this book as well, uh, a major motion picture. Uh, um, and uh, it's Hugh Schoenfield's idea. He didn't mention sp uh, cannabis sp specifically, but he said some sort of, uh, you know, a potion that would produce that sort of state. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, there was a there was a chapter in your book, Liber Four Twenty, that you called the Gaiet uh, Alakim. Is that how you say it? And you this is the tenth uh, century book, Arabic book of magic, mm -hmm. uh, and it was translated into Latin in the thirteenth century by King Alfonso of Spain, uh, uh, and uh, um, titled the Picatrix, and it became. Uh, one of the founding documents of uh, the Western magical tradition. And in the uh, Picatrix, there's a uh, recipe for invoking the uh, uh, guardian of the moon that involves uh, cannabis and uh, other resins mixed with stag blood uh, being burnt in the middle of, uh, of a spring in a cave. And uh, uh, then you would see that once you started burning all this stuff up, it was like a pound of hashish. You know, cannabis resin is what's specifically hmm. referred to. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of cannabis. That's a lot of cannabis. <laughs> um, and uh, um, then he, he would see the deity of the moon, the guardian of the moon, in this pillar of smoke, you know? So, I mean, were these people using this compound as a type of offering to invoke these beings? Well, you know, cannabis has a long history of magic. I think that... Uh, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it might be that uh, um, you take a psychoactive substance uh, um, in a large amount and you uh, put it into a fire and you start staring into the smoke. You're going right. to start seeing things in the smoke just naturally. You're going to you know? start inhaling the smoke as well. Start inhaling the smoke as well. It's going to affect your. Uh, it's going to affect your consciousness, and and so there's the combination. 
<coughs> of the of the effect of the substance, which causes uh, uh, visual distortions and also new visual interpretation of what's being seen, and the smoke and uh, reflections of the water and the light and all of that combining to create an illusion in the smoke. You know, now whether that's a product of uh, the subconscious or unconscious or drugs or an actual the, the substance that opens you up enough that uh, you're able to see something, uh, that you wouldn't normally see that is there. You know, all these these are all possible answers to that equation. But you know, I kind of think that uh, you know you have to take into account the effects of these substances themselves on users when you're when you're dealing with this type of thing in magic. So, I mean, it, it seems like an important element in the ritual would be you know the choice of location, setting, and you know it, it's in. You mentioned the Picatrix, and you talk about how it would be placed near water and that seems yep. to help the efficacy of of the ritual itself like why why place it near waters is it well, has to do like, with pareidolia or what's going on yeah yeah pareidolia being you know seeing uh faces in rocks and things like that you know or, or uh, uh uh demons in smoke too right you know um yeah i think that the light of the fire uh would play off of uh off of the water and reflect back into the smoke, all of that type of stuff would be uh, uh, um, create a visual effect, certainly. Hmm. Okay, and then, you know, you move into the connection with uh, the, the Picatrix and John D. I'd really like to know more about, you know, who John D. was, his importance to the Queen, and that relationship. Can you bring that up, please? Yeah, yeah. It's not clear that Dr. John D. had the Picatrix. You know, we don't know um, exactly you know, which, which grimoires uh, D. had, but we do know that grimoires in England uh, um, in the 16th century, when John D. was, was performing his magic, uh, um, did in fact uh, um, refer to cannabis uh, in its use for scrying with magic mirrors, which, which John, Dr. John D. was very into. Dr. John D., was a, uh, a scientist and a magician who was in the employ of uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth for some time. And uh, um, Dee, uh, along with uh, his assistant, uh, Edward Kelly, um, were very into mirror scrying. And this is, could be done with crystal balls or with black opaque mirrors. And you'd stare into these mirrors until you started to see a vision. Mm -hmm. And in the Sefer Raziel, Liber Salomonis, a uh, grimoire from the 16th century, an English grimoire, uh, um, thought to go back to Hebrew influences, you know, likely even, uh, you know, things from the Holy Land, but it's, it's unclear. We don't have the earlier uh, documentation of that, as well as uh, the Book of Magic and Invocation, which has been recently republished as the Book of Oberon. Uh, um, both of these documents contain recipes for cannabis, in the in the case of uh, the Sefer Raziel, Liber Salomonis, it's mixed with uh, wormwood, which contains thujone, and goes to the same receptor site as uh, THC, to be uh, made into an ointment. And then you use this ointment, and then you stare into a mirror, and you'd see demons and ghosts and things like that that you can communicate with. And in the case of uh, the uh, Book of Magic, or the Book of Oberon, as it's now known, uh, they refer to devil's trumpet, uh, unknown plant, but it could well be a nightshade. Mm -hmm. uh, very potent hallucinogenic uh, uh, um, a substance, you know, and uh, again used in the exact same way. And this is and in Dee's own uh, recordings of uh, his uh, visionary uh, scrying sessions, which he referred to as the actions. Um, there's one account where 
uh, um, they're, they're talking about taking a potion and they feel very drowsy from it, you know, but then they begin to see visions. And in another kind of curiously hilarious account, um, we have Edward Kelly explaining to somebody that he's claiming to talk to in a mirror as D writes, John, Dr. John D writes all this down, how that he doesn't have any drugs and he shows him an empty, empty apothecary box and says, see, my apothecary box is empty. Mm-hmm. And the spirit from the mirror responds back, well, how about any ointments? Do you have any ointments? And this is what is, is, is referred to in uh, Sefer Raziel and uh, uh, the Book of Magic. And, you know, we don't have any ointments either. And uh, the, the, the deity is like, well, how do you expect to talk to me, you know, basically when you come empty-handed? <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, you know, what could be happening here uh, is that Edward Kelly was just, you know, pl- prying uh, Dr. John Dee to provide some more drugs so he could see some visions by claiming <laughs> you know, because Kelly was known to be a bit of a, uh, a con artist. And it's also important to remember that around the same time, Opium was very popular, newly discovered, you know, like uh, medicine in these areas, right? And uh, quite addictive, you know, <laughs> which would make you really want some more if you were Edward Kelly and he'd been using that for scrying purposes. Oh, wow. I mean, it's really fascinating. And certainly the queen, I mean, if this guy's employed by the queen, I mean, there should be some relevance to the stuff that he's discovering. And he's using these this compound to you know, scry and communicate with these entities or, or beings and, and gain information. I mean, do you think that that was the primary usage to gain access into these mystical states so that they yeah. could predict the future or, you know, what was the intention? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like a lot of magic for this type of scrying magic and that sort of thing was to find treasure, to find information about other people, uh, to communicate with dead relatives and that sort of thing. There's a variety of different uh uh, agendas, you know. Uh, uh, John D is uh, still very popular in the magical world today. The Enochian tablets, which are uh, um, uh, uh, the product of uh, uh, John D's scrying sessions with Edward Kelly, a whole language uh, that is, is this language came out of these these scrying mirrors, and people are still practicing magic and uh, you know claiming its efficiency. Uh, this this system of magic developed by Doctor John D, and he was also a great mathematician. And uh, uh, other people said he was you know master of codes. And things like that. Some have said he had worked as a spy for Queen Elizabeth as well, you mm-hmm. know. So he was a, a pretty interesting cat. For sure. Um, you know, and, and speaking for you personally, I mean, have you ever, you know, used cannabis in a ritualistic setting to, you know, communicate with spirits? Um, well, I definitely, you know, I, I use cannabis all the time, so it's <laughs> slightly different for me than it is for somebody, you know, like a Zoroastrian guy who never uses it and all of a sudden does a potent wine infusion, you know, which would be knock somebody like myself out even. That's their first experience with it. And I think a lot of the magical situations, I mean, these people weren't regular users of cannabis. It was like a, a rare spice and commodity that they'd gotten hold of and it was used very specifically for magical purposes. And I think this is true of a lot of 19th century occult use as well, right? But I do find that uh, um, cannabis opens me up to my subconscious or unconscious mind and brings in another level of intuition uh, uh, that I wouldn't get without it. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that's the trade-off between using it once in a while specifically for magical purposes as opposed to using it regularly like I, I myself do. But I would say that, you know, 
I, I don't think I could have written my books and uh, put together a lot of this this information without the sort of associations that cannabis uh, can create in my mind uh, um, and uh, access to deeper recesses of my own consciousness, which is part of the collective consciousness as well. Uh, um, and and that, that in that way, it's a very, very potent uh, uh, entheogen for me. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a drug that should be given a huge amount of respect and regard for when you're imbibing and using it. Yeah. Um, you know, I want, I want to talk, you mentioned Shakespeare and yeah. there's, I guess there's some connection between Shakespeare and a drug lab and what's going on there. Drug lab. Hmm, I'm not sure what you're referring to specifically in regards to that, but in, in regards to Shakespeare, he does mention hemp in uh, a couple of his plays in Midsummer Night's Dreams. He says, uh, Puck says of some, uh, guys, uh, what hemp and homespuns are these? And Puck himself is also referred to as Robin Goodfellow in uh, um, Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And Robin Goodfellow was a very uh, popular English folklore character. And he you know, had goat legs and horns and things like that. But he was he's often associated with hemp. His catchphrase was hemp and hampen. And uh, he was uh, a, a prankster who would uh, sometimes help out the, uh, the, the, the women by helping them uh, – um, break their hemp, which means like getting the fibers separated from the stalk, which they would usually do by like whacking a big uh, uh, pile of stalks onto a board until they started to break apart and the fibers break apart. Uh, Robin Goodfellow would do it sometimes by having sex with a woman over top of a pile of hemp. <laughs> and the, the raucous of the sex would uh, break all the fibers apart. So uh, uh, Shakespeare specifically incorporated uh, um, uh, uh, Robin Goodfellow as Puck into A Midsummer Night's Dream, and he also incorporated Oberon, uh, the, the prince of the fairies, and our king of the fairies, and Oberon is described in age literature as sometimes riding on a hempen stalk, you know? Um, huh. So some, some references there. But uh, there was a couple of uh, um, South African uh, uh, professors who had a theory that Shakespeare was a can secret cannabis user, and they had based this on some of his sonnets and references to a, uh, uh, what was the name of the, uh, not a scarlet woman, but... Uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, it escapes me right now, but it was kind of a, a veiled reference to like a hidden woman. But he said this was actually more like a muse in the Greek sense, a, a source of inspiration. And based on their theory, they were able to get the Shakespeare Trust in England to give them pipe fragments found from the property where Shakespeare lived. And they had these pipe fragments uh, uh, analyzed, and they showed positive results for mm -hmm. cannabis. Uh, up their theory somewhat. Now, these were just pipe pieces from the time period found on Shakespeare's property. It's not like they were this was actually Shakespeare's pipe, but it could well be. They used these ceramic pipes back then, and people just would toss them out. And it's from the same time period, uh, right in his location, you know. Uh, so somebody would apparently seem to have been using uh, cannabis, you know. It's very controversial, this stuff. But these uh, uh, two professors, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Vandermeer and uh, Professor Francis Thackeray, have been stuck by this theory for 20 years and have written numbers of articles about it. And it's not to be lightly poo-pooed. Um, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to the analysis. And there's a lot to the documentation they present uh, um, about that. So, I mean, it, it seems like there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that you've collected about the usage of cannabis throughout human history and civilization. So, you know, why 
is why are we dealing with it being illegal? I mean, what happened there? I mean, it, I, I think I guess it was William Randolph Hearst was was that the person that well, had... you know, Jack Hare, the uh, who kind of you know was the grandfather of the modern hemp movement, you know, industrial hemp and its applications really brought that to the forefront. Has suggested that uh, Randolph Hearst, who had a newspaper chain uh, and some uh, um, forest holdings, and there you know uh, was making newspapers out of pulp paper wanted to suppress the hemp industry. You know, it's uh, alleged that one acre of hemp can produce as much paper as four acres of trees over the same 20-year period. That's a much better source for pulp for paper. Um, And that he suppressed this industry uh, with yellow journalism propaganda and using racism against cannabis. And this was also uh, what Herrer alleged of uh, the DuPonts, who had recently patented uh, a variety of uh, petroleum-based products, all of which could be also made from uh, uh, hemp as well, because it's a very high source of cellulose. You can make plastic and Mm -hmm. rubbers and other things like that that you make from petroleum-based products out of hemp, including uh, forms of... It's just a better plant. Just a better plant, you know, but uh, at the time it was hard for it to compete because there's a vast resources of all this oil and stuff like that. Different situation today. And we see the results of, of what the harvesting of that oil has done to our planet as we steadily move towards uh, a hotter planet and climate change uh, caused by man-made uh, you know, fossil fuel uh, damage and that, that sort of thing. Um, so... Uh, um, that's one idea, you know, it's, a lot of it's just racism. I think, you know, a big part of it is like Christians versus the devil's weed. There's always been an inherent fear of these types of things. We saw it in the medieval times with witches. We were often accused of using a variety of uh, psychoactive substances in their own uh, rituals and rites, you know, and this was a, a big basis of, of what was uh, deemed witchcraft and demonic behavior and stuff like that. And it's like... Uh, um, it's like this inherent fear of it because you know they're they're like it they're, they're the whole religion is based on faith but what substances like cannabis and uh, uh, other entheogenic substances like ayahuasca peyote or even these nightshades and things like that they give you a direct experience you're not being told about something you experience something you know and that's a real real challenge um, so I think there was a lot of inherent prejudice at play already. You know, we know that Henry Anslinger, uh, who kind of is largely responsible for bringing in prohibition in the United States of America, uh, used uh, racism as a tool to bring about uh, uh, um, uh, prohibition of cannabis, which was brought in by the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, and you know, stoked fears about white women. Uh, dancing with black men and black men holding the stare of white mm. people under the influence of cannabis and so how it was propaganda propaganda same thing in canada we have emily murphy who was uh w- which was a a name a name used by canada's first female judge uh, or janie canuck which was a name used by canada's first uh, a female judge emily murphy who similarly stoked fears of racism uh, talking about dark browed uh, races seducing the bright browed races i.e white people uh with cannabis and other drugs uh, um so r- racism was largely used in both countries to prohibit prohibit it yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, with the advent of like reefer madness and stuff like that, then there there was this push for a fear pa- campaign of this this drug that could lead to, you know, you questioning things. Whereas with, you know, alcohol or cigarettes or, or whatever, you can buy that on every street corner and it numbs your senses. It, it doesn't get you t- into this altered, heightened state. So, you know, why why would you say there is this sort of green 
revolution that's happening right now. I wouldn't even call it a renaissance. I think that the prohibition of cannabis has inadvertently created cannabis, made cannabis a symbol of freedom. The, the pot leaf is like the peace sign, a recognizable symbol of freedom now. And uh, uh, the, you, when you kink a hose, what happens is the pressure builds up, you know. And that's what they did with cannabis. They tried to kink that hose. And now all this forgotten history has been just starting to pour out. All the lost knowledge about hemp and its industrial applications just flooding back out into the world. All this lost knowledge, you know, that we, we think we're just discovering all this medical knowledge about uh, cannabis now. But you take a look at these ancient texts and medieval texts, you know, they were treating epilepsy uh, uh, with cannabis in ancient Assyria. Paracelsus, the alchemist, had a, a cannabis-infused wine that was used for the treatment of epilepsy. There's nothing new here. We're just rediscovering it, you know. And so inadvertently, they've, 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 they've made it this huge symbol that is a potent force of political change. Uh, there's a whole movement, a revolution happening around this plant. And in a very big way, it's like the natural movement, man, the green movement. This mm -hmm. is like Earth. This is like the mind of Gaia speaking to humanity through cannabis and other entheogenic substances, man. And it's offering us a way, you know, and the choice is we can go the green way or we can, you know, we can exploit the tar sands here in Canada or we can, you know, go with Trump and talk about clean coal, beautiful clean coal and uh, the benefits of uh, big oil and all that type of stuff. And we'll cook this planet up, you know, right now. So this generation right now, we're being offered a pivotal choice for the future of humanity on this planet. And this herb is a big part of that pivotal choice. Mm, I, I love that. I, I really, truly love that. I, I, and I agree. I, I think there is this surge of awareness that's, that's moving in this direction. And, and hopefully our generation can wake up to that. It does wake up to that. Um, you know, it, it seems like you know, I, I just heard a story about this woman, this old woman in Dallas, and the, the legislation is so backwards, I guess, in Texas, was that she she was arrested for a CBD-infused oil that she had for, like, back pain or something like that. Yeah. Well, how about parents arrested for treating their children's epilepsy with cannabis? And we know that cannabis is particularly effective with epilepsy. And epilepsy is a good point when we're talking about ancient world stuff as well, because epilepsy was thought to be demonic possession up until the medieval time period. And we know uh, Syrian references to cannabis use refer to a cannabis uh, preparation being used to treat hand of ghosts, which is thought to be a reference to epilepsy. They thought it was temporary demonic possession or possession by a ghost. And as well, I mentioned the alchemist Paracelsus, you know, who had a, a quintessence, a cannabis-infused wine that was used for epilepsy. Uh, um, and uh, that's a miracle to these people. Their, their children are having hundreds of seizures a year. They're going to die from the damage their bodies are getting from these seizures. Mm -hmm. And then they cannabis, and they stop the seizures, sometimes almost completely. And this is like scientifically proven. It's not like some bold claim you know some you know it's, it's, it's known that this is happening and parents find this relief for their children and then they're being threatened with jail and in some cases being put in jail and some being cases being separated from their children and you know if that's not a crime against humanity i don't know what is and but people are waking up to this now i mean we're realizing that cannabis is going to be better for you than drinking alcohol well cannabis is the tree of life man this is the apocalypse <laughs> Do you People really think that we are in the apocalypse right now? 
Yeah, I really think that we the are in times. the eclipse, you know, like uh, uh, um, I don't know that it's exactly, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world. Sure. But uh, uh, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's been brought about by people believing in it so much. I'm not necessarily saying it's a prophecy, but you got all these evangelicals. Uh, um, you know, making political decisions based on some sort of apocalyptic timeline and, and doing things in the, with Mideast foreign policy that's all related to the book of Revelation, you know, like trying to put an embassy in, in Jerusalem and things like that. Yeah, I think it is the apocalypse and that, uh, that cannabis is the tree of life. Well, tell me more about this apocalypse idea. I mean, like how, you know, it, it does seem like there is some predictive programming or something that's happening within, you know, mainstream culture where we're being shown images of the apocalypse and then that is you know fed to us over and over and over so you know there there is something that it that is connecting there for for you know culture so you know how you know how would we know and you know at what point do you say okay this is this is where the apocalypse is occurring how do we know what it looks like yeah well i really think that's you know that that's really gonna fall yeah there's not like a a complete answer for everybody for that because everybody's looking at it from different perspectives. You know, it's not like I'm a Christian. You know, I don't believe in Jesus' virgin birth. As I mentioned, I don't believe in the crucifixion. I think that uh, in my apocalypse, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is the rediscovery of the Gnostic literature, the things like the Nag Hammadi texts, which uh, have all these new accounts of Jesus that depicted Jesus very different from the Jesus of the New Testament, which was put together by. Uh, uh, Roman authorities, basically, you know, the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, you know, and they, they suppressed all sorts of documents and decided which documents would make up the New Testament. Now, the New Testament is basically like Caesar's Bible. It was a means of controlling the Roman populace. Hmm. Um, and uh, um, it was designed for that, you know, and well, so let's, it, just, it, it, let's just define Gnosticism for the people that are listening that might not know what that is. If you can yeah, I, if you can do well, that. You know, it's, it's going to my, my definition. Let's see. Gnosticism is a blanket name. Gnostic means knowledge. Okay. And Gnosticism is a blanket name for a variety of religious sects, mostly Christian, but some Jewish, uh, um, uh, uh, that were around for the first few centuries AD, up until about the fourth century, when they're finally completely suppressed as the Roman Catholic Church took over. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, what we originally knew about these Gnostic uh, groups uh, was based on um, what the Church Fathers, Augustine and other, uh, uh, Hippolytus and other figures, uh, wrote about them. Sure. And uh, in the ancient texts, you know, and they gave, you know, excerpts of some of their texts and why they were suppressing them. A lot of it had to do with tantric-like sex practices and alternative beliefs, you know, like uh, one of – but there's all these different sects. Like I said, it's a blanket name, but they had varying beliefs. So I'm making some generalizations here, but it's not true of every Gnostic sect, you know. Okay. Uh, um, and uh, one of the more general beliefs was that uh, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, if you want to use that name, um, uh, was actually a demon who was like a parasite uh, living off of humanity who tricked them into worshiping. So the whole thing's reversed. Like the archons. Like the archons, yeah. And that the serpent, uh, who's identified with Jesus, uh, was actually the good guy. And Jesus was, you know, on side of Gnosticism, right? And it's really hard to say whether that's 
you know, if there was a historical Jesus, was he a Gnostic or, or was he more, you know, in line with the Jewish thing? It's really hard to say that all this materials goes back to around the same time period. There's not that much difference in, in the oldest Gnostic text and the oldest uh, Christian text in decades, maybe. Um, and uh, um, uh, that uh, light had descended into matter. Uh, um, and through a series of incarnations, mineral, vegetable, animal, and then man, it started to progress back out of uh, matter. And man was the transition point of light back to the kingdom of light from whence it originated and from which uh, uh, Yahweh, the, 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 the demonic force, had also split off from much earlier than this, was a part of too. Uh, um, so so, so let, me, let me pause you there. I'm, I'm sorry to bump you there. But yeah. so, so are you saying that, you know, based on Gnosticism and, you know, various sects of it, that there is this understanding that the, the mainstream understanding of Christianity is that Yahweh, or the name for that, uh, is this energy that's being stolen from humanity, that humanity was tricked, and somewhere, like the Nag Hammadi t- texts, we're talking about you know this, this serpent that was actually giving knowledge to yeah. Eve and freeing Adam and Eve from the the what control of yeah yeah well you know in the gnostic version of the adam and eve story they point out how that you know when god told them if they ate from the the tree of knowledge and the, and the tree of life the trees that he, they would die but they didn't die their eyes became opened right and so they they said that that god was a quote malicious grudger who was trying to trick mankind and prevent them from attaining knowledge like they attained from the 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 substance from the tree of knowledge of good and evil right uh, um and uh as well, other things as well, like a, a, a big point of uh, uh, contention between the Gnostic sects and the Roman Catholic uh, sects was uh, things like uh, uh, um, Jesus' crucifixion. The, the Gnostics referred to the crucifixion and resurrection as the faith of fools. Mm-hmm. did that at all, you know, and said that mankind was being tricked by tales of a dead man, you know. And um, Well, it is called all, the crucifixion, you know, as in a yeah, work of fiction. Yeah. In there, <laughs> um, and uh, so that was that goes out the window, and that uh, Jesus was more like uh, individual who through purifications, kind of yoga, almost practices and and uh, meditation and that sort of thing, had got down to that essence that animates us all. But we could all become Christ by following that same path of knowledge, you know. And we know that the Gnostics were using a variety of psychoactive substances because we have agent references to things like infused wines in, in Gnostic rituals and uh, ritual burnings of incenses, which contained a wonder, it refers to, uh, um, and uh, uh, things like that. So it seems pretty clear that they were, were following the entheogenic path. Yeah, it's it's really amazing to me. I mean, that I think about this probably more than I should about Gnosticism, and and I I really do question it. I wonder about this sometimes. And um, you know, could it be that there is you know this floating realm of of archons that are like pulling and and pushing negative states, fear based states, and then feeding off of them somehow? I mean, that, it seems like a really interesting sort of line of thinking or thought to me. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we can get into collective headspaces, like you take a look at the collective beliefs of the evangelical movement, and them as a group could almost, you could almost consider their influence in group as the influence of one source, because it's all so on the same page, you know, um, and, and, and the way it affects the wider world, you know, so 
Uh, um, in Gnosticism, the final savior of humanity is actually referred to as Anthropos, and that's like uh, from the same root we get anthropology from, and it basically means the spirit of humanity. And the idea is that there's Carl Jung was very uh, the father of uh, modern psychology, sure. came up with the idea of collective unconscious. He was very into Gnosticism, was very influenced by the ideas of it, you know, and I'd suggest that his concept of the collective unconscious was likely influenced by Gnosticism and the concept of Anthropos, because he knew about all this stuff. He actually wrote a text under the name Basiliades, which was an agent Gnostic teacher, uh, claiming some connection with Basiliades, the Gnostic teacher. But uh, um, I think there's like this collective aspect to humanity. You know, it's like in the Kabbalah as well. They refer to Adam Kadman at the center of the tree of life in, in the Kabbalistic world. And Shiva as well is kind of like the collective aspect of consciousness of humanity. And that uh, um, that's, you know, a big thing that's happening right now is that collective aspect of humanity that we all are a part of and feed in and out of is starting to recognize itself and coming into some sort of form of self-reflection in the same way that, that, that humans did as individuals thousands of years ago. Um, and that, 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 that kind of element, this collective aspect that's, I think, as close as we can come to God. You know, Jung said that the collective unconscious was the same force as instinct in other animals. You know, when in other animals, like say a sea elephant, the day it's born, it can go fishing or a deer can stand up and walk around, you know, and uh, that shows that some sort of knowledge is passed down genetically. We have this as well, but it's deeply buried under the uh, uh, evolutionary uh, um, expansion of the brain that happened with humanity, our larger brains, the larger area for higher thinking and memory and the frontal lobes, that type of stuff. But we still have this aspect of instinctual consciousness. And this instinctual consciousness is an aspect of awareness that has passed down genetically and, uh, you know, uh, shows us what to fear and what to, you know, sex instinct, that sort of thing. And Jung said because this was continually passed down, certain imagery and archetypes imprinted on it. It recognizes the, that imagery and archetype because it's seen it over and over again through various incarnations. And when you talk about something like the Book of Revelation and Apocalypse and an end of world type of imagery, mm -hmm. that's really been a largely ingrained into human consciousness. And it's like we have this collective death wish because of these death religions and the death scenario, whether it be jihad or Armageddon, or Kali Yuga, has been ingrained into the human consciousness, and we're projecting that back out. What we really need to get a hold of is get a control of this ship and give it a new myth and a new direction. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? And, you know, just to, to posit this idea, you know, if, if there is this resurgence of psychedelics and these compounds happening, and there are more people finding out about them and shows like this talking about them and more people taking them, then, you know, could it be said that there is some sort of, you know, process happening with the collective unconscious and the uh, a closer reach to enlightenment, perhaps? I, I think so. I think that's, you know, that's that's one of the potential futures that we're we're in right now. You know, it could go a lot of different ways. 
Uh, um, and it takes people waking up to take it in that direction. And these substances wake us up, you know. I think that, you know, you take a look at particularly with the environmental situation, cultures that have continued the traditional use of, of these sorts of substances, whether it be ayahuasca in South America or iboga in Africa or the sacred mushroom, sacred cacti in Mexico, they are more in tune with their natural environment than Western man. Western man has lost its way. Uh, you know, in, in regards to the environment. And you take sacred mushroom, you take a walk in the forest, and it'll turn that forest from a commodity into a living, breathing mm -hmm. entity, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and that's the power of these substances. These are the voices of Gaia, the messengers of Gaia, Mother Earth, man. And they're here right now to lead us back to the garden. So, I mean... So, I mean, with, with this age of information that we're in and, and technology and the way social media is impacting culture, editing culture, what we think, how we think, I mean, how do you think that interfaces with this other side? Because it seems like t two different opposing things like technology, Gaia, I mean, can they be connected? Oh, I'm not anti-technology, you know, and I don't think technology is the problem. It's the, you know, it's, it's doing things stupidly and wrongly, you know, just for corporations. quick corporations, corporations, that type of stuff. I think if we're going to, you know, find ways out of the, the challenges that we put before ourselves, a large part of that will be through technology, you know, uh, um, and green technology. Technology doesn't have to, but, you know, it's getting back in tune with, with the earth and caring about the earth. That's really the issue. I mean, do you think do you think it could be too late? Do you think we were we could be at a point where you know ecologically yeah. we're facing a nightmare that you know this is, is irreversible? This is something that's really been troubling me lately, and you know it causes me to have depression. Um, I don't think there's a problem on Earth right now that we don't have potential solutions to, but the potent the, the the ability to implicate those solutions just seems to be lost to me. You know, when I take a look at the governments and, and the way that the, the corporations and big oil have control and influence over those governments, you know, Trump is like, Trump is like cutting uh, uh, environmental protection uh, uh, left and right, you know. And here in Canada, we have a prime minister who's preaching uh, green, a greener world, but then is expanding the tar sands, one of the most com completely polluting sources of uh, uh, fossil-based fuel industry in the world, the, the, the development of the tar sands, is, 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 it will certainly increase global warming and stuff like that, you know. And so the hopes of implementing solutions just seems impossible when you have, you know, the White House scrubbing every reference to climate change and global warming from their, from their, their, their database. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's intriguing to me that, you know, like technology can be both you know, our, our, our greatest ally and our worst enemy, uh, in many ways. But, you know, it, it's also interesting that we, you know, we're at such a, a pinnacle point and, you know, we can, we can either move with this and understand it, or we can be oppressed by it. And either we're at this point ecologically where, it may or may not be too late. I mean, the the glacial ice caps are melting and we, until that point of where it's directly impacting us, where we start to care, I mean, maybe that is just too late, you know, at that point. But, yeah. you know, I, th I think we still have some time, you know, left. 
I think we still have some time left, you know, and, uh, you know, myself, I try to change the world and uh, swing things the way I want it to go. I focus on my own personal development that should the worst happen and <laughs> I cease to exist, that I'm ready for that transition. And uh, um, I also, uh, you know, with like one of the background agendas with uh, the retreat that we've been building, Soma Institute, is preparing a uh, uh, self-sufficient uh, 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 piece of land and community that can be an ark for the sacraments and uh, survive. <laughs> as best we can into these darker days, you know. So I take a, a multi-pronged approach and try to approach uh, the coming years in, in a variety of different ways and from a variety of different levels. That sounds really good, Chris. I mean, I, I think we've discussed pretty much, you know, everything that we could discuss right now in this in this hour. We're a little bit over the hour. Is yeah. is there anything that I could have asked you that I that I should have asked you? Well, I, I don't know. Covered a lot of ground there. There's you know a million things to talk about when you know we were talking about cannabis and uh, uh, you know I think a big thing a lot that a lot of people find interesting is uh, this whole element of Christian use of it and the idea that Jesus, uh, you know, like in the oldest of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, uh, um, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles with oil to cast out demons and heal the sick. Never does he baptize anybody, but he recommends using this oil for casting out demons and healing the sick. And many of the uh, uh, so-called miracles are of complaints that uh, cannabis is involved with, you know, menstruating complaints, vision complaints, uh, um, stiff joints and things like that. And one of the big points of contention between what became the Catholic Church and the Gnostic sects was water baptism versus anointing with oil. The Gnostics said there's only water in the baptism, but there is fire in the anointing oil, and through it we are initiated to unfading bliss. And they refer to it containing a plant of kindness that could straighten the crooked limbs and heal the sick. Mm. And uh, um, that's some powerful stuff, you know. I think that, Absolutely. you know, that is one of the things that, you know, the more that those ideas go mainstream, it's something that actually might appeal to to evangelical Christians, you know, who have relatives who suffer from cancer, who have relatives who suffer from epilepsy, and who are looking for real cures for that, you know, as they start to find out about cannabis, they might open up to the, the medical uses, and then the idea that their own Savior may have healed this way, well, that's a revelation, brother. That's a revelation. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I think plants are going to dictate, you know, how our civilization, our species learns to connect and adapt with, you know, the planet that we, we call home. Um, Chris, this has been a fascinating conversation, my friend. Uh, where can people find your work? Where can, where can people go and buy your book? Yeah, if you want to like you know uh, follow me on Facebook, I'm always posting interesting stuff there. I have a blog at cannabisculture.com. Um, I've got numbers of documentaries on YouTube. If you search my name in cannabis, and you can find my books on Amazon and other websites, they're all over the place. Guys, that's going to do it for us here at HXP. We're certainly going to be back for you guys next week with another live broadcast. If you're not subscribed to us on YouTube, get over there. Search for the Human Experience Podcast. Make sure you click subscribe, click the bell so you get notified when we go live. Um, if you're using, if you're listening to this in the podcast version, please make sure you get to iTunes and leave us a review. Um, I've been, I, I found out on Monday actually that we were ranked number 35 in the philosophy category 
on the Apple iTunes charts. So it would be amazing if we could crack the top 10 of that list. Um, and as usual, the biggest compliment that you can give us is by sharing the episodes that you like the most and the podcast with your friends and family. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week. We're going to get out of here.